We're continuing our study this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. There's a picture we want to look at. Can we have that first slide right off? That's perfect. I want to make the case this morning that the overriding message of the Gospel of Matthew is simply that Jesus is Lord. And that's not a simple thing. It's a glorious thing. He's Lord. And we want to look at why that lordship, why that authority is good news. First, let's read chapter 14. It's not a short chapter. We'll make our way through it and then draw out what the Holy Spirit seems to want to be emphasizing. So Matthew 14, it'll be on the screen. I'll read out loud. You can just follow. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the name of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is the Baptist. This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized him, had seized John, and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though Herod wanted to put him to initially wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company to please Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Do you get the feeling there's some bad blood between these groups, these families? And the king was sorry, because, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard of this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Briefly hit the pause button. What's going there? Is Jesus withdrawing in order to grieve? That would make sense. When you are heartbroken, you, you want to get away from people to some measure. He withdrew in a boat, I think possibly to grieve, but notice what happens. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion. Despite his pain, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. I know in a season when if I've been hurting, a crowd of 5,000 needy people would probably not be the first thing I would want to see. And if, and if I did see it, I'd probably try to find some discreet diplomatic way to run the other way. Jesus doesn't do that. He wades right into this needy group of people and he's going around healing their sick. Wonderful. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. Hold on to that little phrase, desolate place. It's part of the key to the entire chapter. The disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, 
we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Note that little detail, sit down on the grass. We've already already seen that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You see Matthew beginning to lay a case here. And taking up the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Again, note the, a little detail here. Remember, this is Matthew. He's one of the most detailed in his writing style of the four Gospels, very Jewishly sensitive. Notice the verbs he uses in the part, bottom part of this slide. He said a blessing. He broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Took, blessed, broke, gave. Does this sound a little bit familiar? Points us forward. We will come back to that. They all ate and were satisfied. This is in a desolate place. What kind of king is this that can put on a feast for this many people to the degree they're, they're all, they all eat and are, are satisfied in a desolate place? They picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. There's surplus food. I bet you even the wealthy King Herod didn't have 12 baskets of leftovers. And those who ate were 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. It's not just about reclining in the grass and letting him feed us. It's about getting into the boat when he sends us. Both of those pictures are part of the story. He made the disciples get into the boat before him and go to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Note this, at his instruction, they go out across the sea and they run into a storm. In obedience, takes them into heavy winds. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but it happened to these, to these people in the boat. Their boat was being beaten by the winds because, by the waves because the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Walking on, you know, we've heard this story so many times It's so familiar, we lose the wonder that's in that. You know, people don't walk on water. But the point Matthew's giving us in his whole book is Jesus is Lord. And you can walk on water if you're Lord. And Jesus is Lord. He came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, Come. So Jesus got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, 
Save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took, a hold, of, took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. I like that. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. We made a mention a moment ago that the gospel of Matthew in three words could be said, Jesus is Lord. We see it at the beginning of the story. God rearranges the stars in the sky to focus on the arrival on earth of his son, Jesus. The stars are declaring Jesus is Lord. People called Magi, we don't know a whole lot about them. They, they came from the east, as all Matthew tells us, maybe from modern-day Persia. They came from the east bearing gold and frankincense and myrrh. In that scene, the, the artist in that picture has them kneeling. The Greek in Matthew's account suggests it was not just that they just kneeling. They got down and prostrated themselves before this child and then laid in front of him their gold, their frankincense, and their myrrh. You know what frankincense is? It's, it's myrrh of a very high quality. It's outrageously expensive. That's the kind of offerings they were making. And my image is always of these, they must have been wealthy, well-educated. They had come all these many, many, many miles. And how, where do they end their journey? On their faces in front of Christ. Somehow they knew who this was, at least in measure. That his, this child's authority was greater than their own. And his worth was greater than the worth of all the gold. The stars say he is Lord. The nations represented by the Magi say he is Lord. When he dies on the cross in chapter 27, something cosmic, something seismic happens. The rocks on the surface of the ground crack in two. So momentous is this moment, this sacrifice for our sin. So the planet earth, the rocks, they declare he is Lord. The stars say it. The representatives from the nations called the Magi say it. The rocks say Jesus is Lord. And then perhaps the most important declaration of all is at the very end of Matthew, what we call the Great Commission. The risen Christ meets with his disciples shortly before his mighty ascension into heaven. And he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth. Heaven and earth. That's a whale of a lot more authority than this Herod fellow's got. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It takes us right back to the Magi, the nations. Being able to come and connect with God through the Lord Jesus. The underlying theme of Matthew from front to back is three words. Jesus is Lord. Now, midway through the book, exactly midway, in fact, because Matthew's book is 28 chapters, we're in chapter 14, the midpoint, and there's several scenes in this chapter which very vividly show us that Jesus is Lord and why it's good news. The first one about our friend Herod. Matthew's point in laying out the scene the way he does is to show us that Jesus is Lord and Herod is not. Jesus is Lord and Herod is not. We read about two back-to-back -back feasts. One is a very worldly, carnal, 
possibly lustful and ultimately murderous party. It ends up resulting in the grisly death of John the Baptist. The other is an entirely opposite kind of feast, not maybe a few dozen wealthy half-drunk people, but 5,000 men plus their families. This might have been eight or 10,000 people for all we know. They all eat and were satisfied and go home sober, as, as, from what we can tell from the account. Many of them were physically sick. Those who were physically, physically sick, Jesus healed them. Why is he doing all that? Because he's Lord. Sickness cannot stand up to him. He sent them home well. Hunger flees in his presence because he can create food out of nothing. Wait a minute. You can't create matter. Food's made of matter. Loaves and fishes are matter, and you can't create matter out of nothing. It's against the laws of physics. Well, that's true unless you're Lord, and Jesus is Lord. He's above the laws of physics. The way this scene plays out, it has all kinds of memory connections to the experience of Israel. Notice how many times... God has brought his people, covenant people, initially old covenant, out of one place and into another. For example, he brings Israel out of Egypt and brings them into the land. Many centuries after that, he brings them out of Babylon where they have been sent in exile for their rebellions. But he faithfully, after having them there in Babylon in exile for 70 years, brings them out of Babylon and brings them back to the province of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. He brings them from a bad place into a good place. Colossians 1.13. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's all of us. Now, if we want one more vivid example of this being brought out of a bad place and into a good one, look at the two images we have in the PowerPoint. Two feasts. And in one sense, until God has mercy on us, we are all in some way at a, at a feast of Herod, at a worldly way of enjoyment, at drawing on the world's ideas of satisfaction, of pleasure, of, of nourishment, of feeling significant, of feeling invited to where all the important people are. That's one way to feast with a corrupt king. What's God's answer to the situation in the top photo? His answer to the situation in the top photo is the drawing in the bottom photo. His answer for a corrupt king is to send a righteous king who really cares about the needs of his people. He can create food, loaves, and fishes literally out of nothing. He can heal their sicknesses he can feed them in not one way, but in two. He feeds them the word of God. He feeds them to the physical point with phys physical food. They ate and were satisfied. They couldn't even eat anymore, but there was still more food because he still kept creating it. So they start stashing it in baskets. I've seen pictures of the kinds of baskets they used. They were large baskets, and somebody had to carry home 12 of these things. That's the sufficiency of Jesus. He can do this because he's Lord. It's interesting to note where that scene in the bottom 
picture happened. We don't know exactly except that it was in Galilee. Guess who was politically, officially in charge of Galilee? Herod. He was the tetrarch of Galilee. This is not the same Herod that tried, by the way, to exterminate Jesus when Jesus was born. That was Herod the Great. He was the worst of the Herods, and that's saying a lot. That was Herod the Great. This Herod is now Herod Antipas, Herod the Great's son. And there was a dispute among the sons. That happened about once a week, who was going to be on top. And finally, the old man, Herod the Great, gave Herod Antipas Galilee and Perea, these two little provinces. To give you an idea of the scale of some of these provinces and whatnot, if you put Galilee and Perea together combined, sewn together as one piece of land, it would fit in Winnipeg inside the perimeter highway. It's not that gigantic a kingdom. The other king, the one in the bottom scene, he's lord of heaven and earth. You see, there's, sorry Herod, there's just no competition. You are not in this other guy's league in terms of the size of his kingdom. This Herod the when it was Herod, we don't have any record of the stars moving around in the sky and thought, saying, aha, Herod Antipas is born. Only Christ got that because only Christ is the Lord. Jesus did that feast right under Herod's nose. That's why it's important to note it's in Galilee. He's on Herod's turf and he does this messianic eschatological end times end of the age feast it's pointing forward to the great wedding banquet Jesus was big into meals and he does this in the, on Herod's turf it's almost like saying eh, you're not in charge here yes you took John God will raise him from the dead one day and meanwhile I'm going to minister life and refreshing to my people And one final detail before we move on note as we've touched on a moment ago The four verbs Matthew uses to describe the scene. Took, blessed, broke, gave. It's the same actions Matthew will use describing the Lord's Supper. What's that mean? Now this is not the Lord's Supper. There's no wine and Christ never says this is my body when he breaks these loaves. But by using the same four verbs, I think Matthew's also wanting to say, okay, it's not the Lord's Supper, but this is not just an everyday, everyday picnic. Are you with me? It's a fellowship meal with Christ there right in the midst of it. This is about fellowshipping with Jesus. Just take this home, and I go to my next point. Under Herod's nose, we can fellowship with the real King Jesus, always. Is that good news? We've all got some sort of Herod reality glaring down at us. I'll get you in the end. You won't beat me. You won't get free from me. And we can say, well, if the Bible's true, I can get free from you. Now, I have have an appointment. I'm going to have some fellowship with the real king. Under Herod's nose, people can connect with the true king, King Jesus God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The second way we see Jesus' lordship is in the location where all this goes on. We saw that Jesus is Lord and Herod is not. Now we see that Jesus is Lord 
in the desolate place. In the description that we read out a few minutes ago, it mentions the location not once but twice in just two verses. And it sounds like this desolate place locale is, because Matthew mentions it twice, that this is important to him, to Matthew, in helping us understanding the significance of what's going on. Okay, so why is it being in a desolate place an integral part of the story? Let's think about this. Two references to desolate place. One, it recalls one of the more dramatic miracles in the entire Old Testament, namely the manna in the where? In the wilderness. A very, another creating matter out of nothing. It just dropped down out of the sky. God did that for Israel for 40 years. Why did he do it for them in the wilderness? Well, because in the wilderness, there's no food. So if there's some, not some other means of getting this food to the people, like supernaturally, they will die. It's probably not unlikely as some of these people would have maybe died or at least gone home extremely pierced with hunger if Jesus hadn't been there to feed them in the desolate place. In the desolate place, there is no food unless someone's there who can create it out of nothing. You can't do that unless you're Lord and Jesus is Lord. This shepherd can look after his sheep anywhere. This shepherd, this clearly echoes here of the 23rd Psalm. He has them, in the English version, it says he has them sit down in the grass. Mark, in the Mark account, it actually mentions green grass. It makes the 23rd Psalm link even stronger. Here, he just had them sit in the grass, and the Greek word that usually gets translated sit is actually recline. They're reclining in the grass. You know, it's, Matthew is going, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Do you get it? Did you ever read Psalm 23? The, the shepherd Lord of Psalm 23 is here. He's here in the form of Jesus. The point being, this shepherd, this King Herod notwithstanding, and the desolation of the locale notwithstanding, this shepherd can look after his sheep anywhere. Let me say that again. I want us to take that home today. This shepherd can look after his sheep anywhere. I'm going to say that once more. When I give you the signal, I want you to say nice and loud the word, just the word anywhere, okay? This shepherd can look after his sheep anywhere. anywhere. We have to believe that. Our desolate place may not look like, you know, empty fields on the hills of Galilee. Our desolate place may be a dead-end job or lack of a job. Our desolate place may be sickness, ourself, a loved one. Our desolate place may be family tensions that seem to just drag on and on. That could be our desolate place. Our desolate place could be kids, growing, teenager, grown kids turning away from the Lord. I had lunch the other day with a friend where that's happened to him. He's just brokenhearted. He did his best to be a Christian dad, but the kids are making very different choices. That, he's in a desolate place emotionally because of this. Matthew would say to us, look, let me encourage you. 
the lordship of Jesus is good news because that means he can look after his sheep in your desolate place. Let him be your shepherd. In the meanwhile, maybe all you've got the grace to do is to do what he says to do, which is to recline in the green grass. Let him look after you. Maybe some of these problems aren't going to go away right away. That doesn't need to destroy you. Recline in the grass. Let the shepherd look after you. Rest in him. Jesus is Lord. Herod is not. Jesus is Lord in the desolate place. Jesus is also Lord in another extremely challenging place. That is the stormy sea. Jesus is Lord of the stormy sea. This part of the scene in Matthew begins with instructions. It begins with a command. Jesus says, well, Matthew says, he made them get into the boat so he could send them across the sea so they would go ahead of him, presumably as as heralds for his soon arrival. And he goes up on the top of a mountain to pray. But that obedience leads them into some rough waters. If I can encourage myself and encourage all of us this morning, rough waters don't mean you're out of God's will. They may mean you're in it. Because that's certainly the case with these fellows. They run into rough waters. In the Old Testament, chaos, pardon me, in the Old Testament, the sea, the stormy sea represents chaos. It represents forces outside our control. I personally, mentally, have a big problem when I'm out of control, if I'm late for a, a, like at an airport, I realize I'm maybe I'm going to miss my flight, something like that. Uh, things where there's kinds of craziness going on and it's getting stressful and I know I, myself, can't do anything about it. The Old Testament's word picture for that kind of experience is the stormy sea. Because what can man do with the stormy sea? Well, you can control the stormy sea if you're Lord. And Jesus is Lord. Here's a picture from the Old Testament about the the emotional impact that the stormy sea has. This is from Psalm 69, verse 1. Just listen to these words. It's the sense of drowning and being out of control, being in danger. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the deep mire where there is no foothold that's a, that's a scary thing. You're sinking and you can't find a foothold, something to, to stand on. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods, and the flood sweeps over me. Whoever wrote that psalm, I forget if it's a David psalm or whoever, but whoever wrote it was in a life-threatening situation. And so are the men in this boat. Because the boat could very, very easily sink. Okay? Sea, S-E-A, stormy sea, is something we can't control. But God can, of course, listen to this word from Job. 
you might not think, what, what, you might wonder, how can we learn something from Job about the sea? You can learn a lot from Job about a lot of things. It's an amazing book. Here's Job chapter 9, verse 8, and this is Job himself speaking, and it's in one of his saner moments in the book. He has some moments, he says some pretty crazy things, but this is a good one. Listen to this, Job chapter 9, verse 8. He alone, God alone, stretched out the heavens. Job is describing the creation of the world. He alone stretched out the heavens and, get this, trampled the waves of the sea. Now what an amazing way to describe creation. He stretched out the heavens. There was these skies going on forever and ever. And then on the earth, on planet earth, you have these raging waters that he's just spoken into existence. But I suppose initially it was like, you know, they were sloshing back and forth. The planet maybe wasn't even completely stable quite yet. And waves that would be bigger than anything we've ever seen despite... videos of tsunamis and whatnot. So Job describes how God takes charge of this initially chaotic creation. What's he do? He says, oh, hold on a minute. He's trampling down the waves. I don't know if I would have ever wrote that psalm that way. It's a strange image. God trampling on this waves of a stormy sea. Keep that part in your brain. God creates all things, and part of the creating is to trample the waves. Fast forward. There's a night on the Sea of Galilee, which isn't that big a sea compared to Atlantic or Pacific Ocean. And it's seeming like those original chaotic and life-threatening waves have come back. And it says this, And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. A couple things to note there. Walking on the sea puts the sea under his feet. In the Psalms and in the prophets, when your enemies are under your feet, you've won. That's the point of that image in Hebrew poetry. When something's under your feet, you've won. God won over that chaotic, stormy sea at the very, very beginning, and now his son wins over this chaotic, deadly storm on the Sea of Galilee. He's simply, he's walking on it, which means he's in control of it. And note when he shows up. I suspect the departure when he sent them across the sea, it was getting late in the day. He sends them out on the boat. Maybe it was around sundown or shortly after sundown. We don't know exactly. He goes up the mountain to pray, and they start rowing. But before long, the wind blows up. The wind's blowing as against them. The waves are getting very, very big. In Mark's account of this, it says they were tormented in their rowing. The Greek means almost, it almost has the idea of tortured. If you've ever gone on long canoe trips or long rowing, you know, endlessly, endlessly like this, you think your arms are going to drop off. That's no doubt how they were feeling. We all know Jesus is wise and we all know Jesus is good. 
I think he will forgive us if we at least wonder, Lord, couldn't you have come sooner than 4 a.m.? Why did you wait so long and make them row all night? Well, when we get to meet him in heaven, we can ask about that because I don't know if we have an answer. But he does come to them after praying. Here's an intriguing thing. Who is he praying for? He sends them across the sea. He sends them to go before him in some sense as representatives. I think that's probably what that means. He told them, he made them get into the boat and to go before him across the sea of Galilee. Whatever village they were on their way to, it turns out to be Gennesaret. He gets there with them because he climbs into the boat eventually. So they have gone ahead almost as representatives like heralds. Why did they have to wait to four? The only answer I have is this. He was building something into them called trust. He was on the mountain praying. I'm sure part of what he prayed for up in the top of the mountain was the disciples rowing in the wind. He was praying strength, emotional stamina, mental discipline into their hearts. He was saying to his father, Father, would you send something into them to endure this storm? Because it's ultimately going to build something into them. If they can hold on to you in faith, they'll get through this and be ready for next, the next thing, which might be even bigger. Let's trust timing. I don't need to ask for a show of hands here this morning about how many feel like they're still rowing in some sort of storm that seems like it's been going on a long, long time. Every single one of us has that. All we can do is trust, and that's all God is asking. He's on the mountain praying. He has ascended now, the Lord Jesus, onto a place way higher than a mountain in Galilee. He's in the third heaven. He's at the right hand of God. And just like he prayed for those disciples in the storm, he's praying for all of us this morning. Keep rowing and trust him and trust his timing. When he finally arrives, we're coming to conclusion, when he finally arrives, they initially don't recognize him. They think he's a ghost. They cry out. But then they realize it is their friend Jesus. Peter, is he maybe not entirely convinced because he says, if that's you, tell me to come out to you and walk with you on the sea. And of course, Jesus says, yes, come. And Peter walks on the sea. Do we have this slide with the, yes, excellent. So Peter comes and walks on the sea. Do you know what Jesus is doing here? He is extending his victory to us. He has the power and the victory to do something dramatically supernatural. And when he invites Peter out of the boat, he's saying, Peter, come and share my victory over the stormy sea. Peter, come and share my power over things over which you normally have no power. Yes, Peter, come. Come. It's a one-word command. Come. Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. What's the last three words? under your feet. That's what's happening in this moment for Simon Peter. <laughs> but there's a P.S. Matthew sticks in. <laughs> and that's that Matt, or Peter all of a sudden looks up and sees the wind. Maybe he hears the wind shrieking in particular strength and he becomes afraid and he begins to sink. 
I will not ask for a show of hands about which of the images here of Peter you most identify with. Walking with a big smile on your face on the top of the sea or up to your neck thinking you might drown pretty quick. I know many of us, it's the smaller picture in the lower right. But if that's the case, it's okay. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. And on the surface of the sea, the Lord Jesus can reach down and do one of these. You know how you grab forearm to forearm. It was like that, and he pulled him back up. Oh, man of little faith, why did you doubt? And they walked together back into the boat. The scene ends where it needs to end, because the scene ends where all of creation and all of history and all of redemption are going to end. The goal of the good news is Jesus being worshipped. The men in the the boat got down in the boat and worshipped him, and they said, truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. There was a song that we sang many, many years ago. Maybe it resurfaces now and again. It's not about me. It's all about you. Maybe we overdid that song, but it's a good song, and the message of it is profoundly true. It is not about us. Am I right? It's about him. And the focus in this little scene in this artist's impression of the moment, actually, can I encourage us all to take that home, that image in our minds? It's him. It's about him. Why is he good news? He's good news because he's Lord, and we want to worship him. Let's look at some takeaways, and I'll turn it back to Peter. There's a good question we have to ask at the end of any kind of theology book or any kind of sermon. The question is, so? (laughs) I had a teacher when I was in graduate school, and he'd talk about all the books he was writing, and every time he came out with a new one, his wife would read it, and she'd read the book, put it down, and say, okay, so? (laughs) Because his books to her seemed so impractical. You know, how does this apply to my life? She would read it and say, so? He used to laugh at his own expense, and so he would say, when we start writing or preaching, give people practical applications. So here we go. Jesus is Lord, so? Let's have the the text on the next slide, then we'll be all ready to take these home. Whose feast are we feeding at? We saw two feasts in this message. Whose feast are we feeding at? Two. Are we reclining in the grass? We have a shepherd that can look after us in any desolate place. What's it going to look like to get yourself reclining in the grass, committing to take time each day quietly in his presence, whatever that might look like? Are we reclining in the, green, in the grass? Third, where might Jesus be saying, get into the boat? Maybe there's a mission some of us are need, need to go on. He wants to send us somewhere. For the rest of your life or for two weeks, get into the boat. Talk to him in these days. Find out about that. And in storms, we've all got them. Do we trust his power over the storm? That with a few words he can speak to the storm, as he does earlier in Mark, chapter, or in Mark 4, earlier in Matthew as well. Do we trust his power? He's Lord over the stormy sea. And do we trust his timing? Sore arms and all. More important than all of those rolled together is the last one. 
Are we worshiping him? He's the Lord, and worshiping the Lord is why we exist. Amen.